How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and today we continue our new series, Be On Guard, as Michael teaches from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. You know, when you go to college or grad school or law school or med school or PA school or whatever it might be, you work hard, you do a lot of papers, write, read a lot of books, do a lot of quizzes and testing and labs, and uh, when you finally earn the degree and you walk across the stage and you uh, probably shake a chancellor's hand, perhaps the president's hand, they, they give you a, typically it's not even your actual diploma, that comes later, but you get this little thing and uh, you flip your tassel and then when all the graduating class has finished, you hear this phrase, all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto. So if you had a law degree, you get all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a person with a master's in business administration, whatever your degree or advanced degree might be as a lawyer, you have all you need now. Now, we know in real life, of course, you're going to go work for someone that's going to help you understand what that means. But to the letter of the law, when you get that degree, that diploma, you have all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto. You have all you need. On another note, when you uh, live, and I hope, I hope everyone here has a budget and you've done some financial planning. If not, it's never too late. It really isn't. And it's never too early, by the way. But to sit with people that know more about money than you may think you do. And you, you start to plan. Cindy, I learned over the years what we thought was important wasn't as important as some things we weren't even aware of. But people who live in the economy of managing money and advancing and planning and, and estate planning and trust and donor advised accounts and maybe a family foundation and caring for your grandkids. It sounds like it's impossible. It's really not. It's all incremental. And over the years, if you follow wise counsel and you plan, maybe you're going to retire at 60, 65, 70, 75, whatever the number is, and you sit with a person that really knows this stuff and they say, okay, let's talk about what that would look like if you targeted this age. And you go, okay. And they put it on, a, in our case, a big, uh, a big TV screen. And they go, this is what it would look like. And you go, really? That's astonishing. And then one day, if you live long enough, you will hear them say, you've got all you need. I didn't say all you want, but you have all you need. And when you hear that, whether you're 40 or 50 or 60, I got to tell you, it's a party day. You have all you need. Maybe you've paid off your house. Maybe you've got college funds for your children. Maybe you've got a little lake house or something, or you've got the car of your dreams, but it's all paid for. You got your monthly overhead. You got your medical expenses that are always an unknown. But would you like to hear from your planner? You got all you need. We could do this in any area of life. 
what's the thing that when you wake up in the middle of the night with a start and maybe your, your stomach goes in a bit of a knot that you worry about? Is it health? Is it finances? Your children? The person they marry? The difficulty in their marriage? Loss? What's that thing that grabs you? And if God could tell you, you have all you need. Would you believe him, number one? And if you believed that you had the knowledge, would it change the way you live? That's what we're going to look at today. This very short passage tells you and me, we've got all we need. The problem is we don't understand what that means or how we access all we need. It does not say you have all you want. But it clearly says you and I have all we need. As a high view of the book again, three chapters, it breaks very neatly and very easily into three broad strokes. Chapter one is about the critical need to grow in Christ. We introduced this last week. We're, it's normal for people to grow. It's normal for children to wear out clothes and shoes. It's normal for things to get small very quickly. Growth is part of the Christian life. Secondly, the clear and present danger of false teaching. It will be unsurprising to you how timely what Peter wrote in the first century applies to today with lusts and cravings and temptations that are still present just like they were in the first century. The critical need to grow in Christ, the awareness, the clear and present danger of false teaching in the third chapter, having confidence that Jesus will return. And this isn't just an exercise in eschatology. This is, I can live today with a smile on my face. When we were singing uh, In Christ Alone, uh, the last line that Jason had us sing, until uh, he comes or calls me home. And I leaned over to Wayne. I said, what do you think? You think he's going to come or call you home? And he said, I hope he comes. What would you like for him to come or call you home? See, that's a, I'm smiling at the future. Both, one or the other is inevitable until he comes or calls me home. So the third chapter deals with this anticipation that no matter how difficult, horrible, stinky, bad life can be, you and I should be people that can smile at the future. And that's the book of Peter, Second Peter in a nutshell. Well, let's dive into these two verses today. And I'm going to ask you to read them aloud with me off the screen. You can remain seated, but I want you to read them aloud with me. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of that is in the world by lust. Keep in mind what we're going to focus on. This passage tells us you and I have everything we need to live a good and godly life. Let's talk first of all about the sufficiency of what it means to be in Christ. Chapter 1, again, this critical need to grow. We're supposed to grow. It's normal and natural for us to grow. We're not left alone, however. When a, when a child is born, I often, often comment and tease parents and pregnant moms, you know, the moment of conception, everything is there for that sperm and egg. Once the conception occurs, uh, the, the DNA is set, height, weight, 
hair color, longevity, whether you're going to have cystic fibrosis or cancer. It's all right there. The moment of conception, there are two things required, time and nourishment. That's it. Time and nourishment. And when that baby is born into the world and comes out of the mom, and we have a day and time and weight and measurements and this, that, and the other, and party hats, and it's the most beautiful baby in the world. Has anyone ever said, that's an ugly baby? <laughs> it's the overwhelming experience of a child being born that is unlike any human experience. And it's the most beautiful thing we ever witnessed, right? And you look at that little boy or girl, and even though they're a package of seven pounds and change, 21 inches and change, they're going to be six foot three or five foot eight or whatever they're going to be. All that's required is time and nourishment. Time and nourishment. That's all it takes. The Christian life is no different. But we need divine power to grow as a believer. We'll grow physically and naturally and normally, but his divine power, Peter says, has been granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The main verb here, and I've highlighted it on the slide, is granted. This is one of the things we're going to do as we go through Peter's. We're going to point out a little grammar and a little homework. Some of you who have been in BSF or community Bible study or precept or you're just Bible nerds like me, uh, you like these kinds of things. The rest of us, it's always an education thing because we read things quickly and we have the luxury of doing it a little more carefully. Granted is the primary verb. Granted, we, I referenced last week very briefly, it's just something given to you. It's pertaining to you. It's given to you. And I use the illustration of a gift at a birthday. If, I, if someone gives me uh, you know, a gift card to a, a place I like to eat, I don't reimburse them for the gift card. I say, thank you. And I take my wife and maybe kids and we go enjoy the gift card. It's a gift. It, it was granted to us. Peter is saying this divine power was given to you. It's very important. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't achieve it. We don't aspire to it. It's been granted to us. And so in this, we have all that we need for a sufficient life in Christ. I mentioned last week as well, the Scripture is sufficient, but it doesn't tell me how to fix my lawnmower. And more uh, pertinently, it didn't tell me how to fix my espresso machine last week when it broke. I had to buy a new one because I couldn't repair the old one. The Bible didn't tell me everything about life. It tells me everything about life and faith and enduring suffering and dealing with uh, challenges in marriage and children that break our hearts and unfair injustices in life and losing a job and being involved in litigation and, and losing fill in the blank. This book is sufficient. He spoke it. It's true. It's without error. It's sufficient. And I will drive you back to this again and again and again, and anyone who teaches the Bible should. The adjective divine is interesting here. Divine power, and as you can see on the screen, we've highlighted divine nature. And so Peter's doing something grammatically here we want to take a little bit of a depth look at. The word in Greek for God is theos. If any of you were in a fraternity or a sorority that had a theta, it looks like an O with a line. In Greek, that's a letter that we transliterate, T-H. We've talked about translate versus transliterate. Just as a review, translation, we take a word, mathetes, and translate it, disciple. Gnosis, knowledge. Transliteration is the word baptizo. We turn into baptism. We take a letter for letter equivalent and try to make it English. Make sense? 
So a transliteration is when we don't have a word that is in our, in our English language or any language for that matter. It's Korean, it's Hausa, it's Jew. It doesn't matter what language it is. When you don't have a word that you can translate, you will on occasion transliterate. So the word theos, theos is the word God most of the time in the New Testament. When we look at this word divine, it's theos. It's one letter different. It's an adjective. It means the power comes from divine. Divinity gives this power. I'm overselling it in a point. I want you to see what Peter is and is saying. His divine power, the power that belongs and originates from him, has been granted. Or we would say in our cumbersome translation, granted to you is his divine power. That's how we would work grammar in English. He's granted, that's our primary verb, to you, his divine power. The challenge is, of course, how do we belong to deity and experience that power? And he's going to address that. Keep in mind the context. In this first century period, and there's a lot written on these two verses that would bore most of us to tears. Uh, at this particular time, Peter is writing a Hellenistic audience that knowledge, gnosis, was their god. They believed knowledge and that they could be like the divine if they had enough information, which has some pretty common familiarities today because we worship information, and if we have the right information, we're right and you're wrong. What are we saying? I'm God and you're not. And this is why the social media language and vitriol is so interesting. If I'm right, ergo, you're wrong. There's no discussion about holding tension. You're either right or wrong, and there's no in-between. We don't have any, the, the joke of tolerance is like lost on everybody today. You're right or wrong. Well, in the first century, it was not unlike that. Knowledge was their God. And there's lots of tentacles I won't get into in the first century, but we have to keep in mind what Peter's writing to in the context of his audience, and then how we understand and apply it, because it is applicable today. Everything pertaining to life and godliness, Peter says. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. The antithesis of that would be death and godlessness. Now, this may sound uh, unkind, and uh, someone, the first Sunday we met, uh, there were some young couples here, and I was so surprised to see them, and they said, oh, we like it because you teach the Bible, and you're so direct. I thought, well, I guess that's a compliment. I'm not really sure. Um, but uh, I, I, can, I have known to be rather indelicate at times and not very politically correct and a little bit too direct. But this culture is a culture of death and godlessness. They're not nice, good people. They're people that are lost and hurting and dying and godless. And the greatest irony of any culture at any time is that we're trying to make God more like me as opposed to trying to become more like the person God wants me to be. And in my lifetime, in my index, and I guess every generation before and after will say the same thing, it's never been any worse than today. You know, we have these uh, superlative statements we always say. But you have life and godliness, or you have death and godlessness, and there is no in-between when it comes to God's Word and what He's saying. Sounds harsh, sounds unkind, but Peter is saying this was, divine power was granted to you for eternal life. Now, don't miss verse 4. We're partakers of the divine nature. 
So we have the true knowledge of him, and now we're partakers of the divine nature. And again, first century was wonky on this. First century thought we could all be little gods. You know, some of you come from religious backgrounds where the teaching was you are a little god, a smaller case G god, and you will become a god in the future. And I don't know if they would wax eloquent on 2 Peter uh, 1, 4 or not to get there, but it would be a good verse if they wanted to use that. Listen to what D. Edmund Hebert writes. For Peter, divine was a quality inseparably associated with the person of Jesus Christ. Divine was a quality inseparably associated with the person of Jesus Christ. Linsky writes, the deity of Jesus is the foundation of his entire epistle. Cancel it, and you've got a jumbled ruin. The baseline of Peter's theology is Christology. He's going to talk about the person and work of Christ, but he's got to explain it to us because we're all slow learners. Let's talk about his divine power and the divine nature and how that applies in your life and my life, and that's where he's going. Look again at verse 4. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God's divine power gives us everything we need to live, but here's the rub, and maybe you don't have the problem I have. The problem I have is trying to make the flesh better. I want my life to be better. Many years ago, we were in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and we had a pastor's retreat. And Jack Elwood, Dr. Jack Elwood was on our staff with me. And uh, Jack had come back from 17 years in, uh, in Taiwan and, as he said, beat my head against the wall for 17 years trying to le learn that crazy language. And uh, he came back stateside uh, for his kids to go to college. And he was a brilliant uh, missiologist guy. And uh, we were on this pastoral retreat for a couple of days. And we had these prayer times together. And it was pretty transparent stuff. You know, we weren't hiding secrets. And, and uh, after he and I spent some time reading the Bible and praying, he, he put his hand on my shoulder. He said, Michael, you can't make your flesh any better. I've never forgotten that. It's exactly what I've been trying to do. Make the flesh better. You can't make the flesh any better. We have God's divine power, and we're partakers of the divine nature. I'm not supposed to make my flesh better. Now again, in the spirit of directness, uh, Cindy and I uh, follow a number of folks on social media, and they us. And uh, Cindy and I have made many comments about how many people are in a health craze, a fitness craze. And these things cycle. Uh, there was a time when I actually was in, in great physical shape and ate very well. I know it. You take it by faith. Um, <laughs> but um, it's, it's an interesting, and a lot of people make an industry out of it, which I'm not opposed to. Uh, Paul says, bodily discipline profits little. Not none, little. Godly discipline profits eternally. It doesn't mean we don't take care of this thing. I'm not saying that. My question is, just like I can't make my flesh better, is that my identity? And I'm all for people that are losing weight and eating healthy and have better diets and all, you know, I, I am not opposed to any of that. I am not mad at anybody's doing that. I think it's great. And some people have had transformations. Or with their with their diet, their health, their blood pressure, all these kind of things. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's not God. You can't make the flesh better. You and I may live a few years longer, but more than likely, 
the clock's ticking, and more than likely, God has appointed a time for each man to die. And more than likely, we, we, you know, we can probably hurry up our death. I don't know if we can really slow it down. I'm a cheery preacher, remember that. You, know, <laughs> you, you, probably, you really can't probably make it that much longer. And as you and I look at aging populations, some of us are parents in their 90s. It ain't all pretty. Uh, one of our own lost her dad this week, and he's in eternity. And yet we cling tenaciously. Can't make the flesh better, Michael. It doesn't absolve us of being indolent and eating fried food at every meal and sweet tea at every opportunity and you know just going crazy. But it does remind us, I hope, reminds you and me that divine power and the divine nature are what Scripture is focusing on. We cannot make our flesh better. Um, if I look better, I act better, I'm more disciplined, those things can help, but do they make me more spiritual? The type A's in the room, the Marine Corps in the room, if it was about that, all the type A's and the Marine Corps folks and the highly disciplined, self-motivated, self-started people would all live longer, be smarter, be better, be more handsome, be more beautiful, be thinner, be whatever. Some very disciplined people still struggle with life. Some very disciplined people still get cancer. Some very disciplined people still struggle. Douglas Moo writes, participating in the divine nature is a great and precious privilege through our union with Christ and the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, we share something of God's own holy nature separated from the corrupt world around us. Listen again. Participating in the divine nature is a great and precious privilege. Through our union with Christ and the Holy Spirit who indwells us, we share in something of God's own holy nature separated from the corrupt world around us. Are there times when you're in a situation and you, I don't like the language, there's a check in my spirit or I felt whatever, because we can, over, we can make that into authoritative. But I don't want to ignore it either. Does that make sense? There's a tension. Um, I was visiting an organization uh, years ago with a friend of mine, we got on a road trip and we went to visit, tour this place. And I, I would say I've, I've experienced what I would call oppression maybe a handful of times in my life, four or five times. And I walked onto this tour with my buddy. It was about an hour and a half tour. We were about 30 minutes in. And I looked at him and we simultaneously said, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. There's just something about this that's kind of creeping me out. Uh, when we were in graduate school, they had uh, the Texas, they used to call it the Fat Stock Show and Rodeo. Now they have some other more politically correct name for it. What's it called now? Texas State Fair? Anyway, but the schools get off. And all the kids who, you know, have their cow or their goat or their pig, they take them to the, I mean, it's a big deal. It's big medicine. They've got all kinds of competitions and most high school kids. And, but it's a week-long thing. And it's, it's, I mean, if you're a Texan, you better go or you're like, you're on Christian. Um, so you go to this fat sock show on rodeo. And a friend of mine would rent a booth, and he had this thing called a Bible map. And it was this ostentatious long map that folded out like a panorama of all the events in time and when God was going to return. And the little, little pitch was a free Bible map. And we stood behind. We couldn't walk around in the, in the uh, vendor area, but we could stand behind our little booth. It was, it was like fish in a barrel. And people would stand like this far away because it had the word Bible in it, you know, whoa. And we go, you want a free Bible map? It's free. 
And you know, a few brave souls will come up and they talk to you. And we have one laminated on the little counter and we talk about it. And it was a very simple approach. And if they ask questions, we can answer the questions. And we shared Christ with so many people, it was crazy. It was crazy. One guy uh, came back. We had chairs, and they could voluntarily come back and sit in chairs and talk to us. One guy was a Hispanic guy. I took 12 years of Spanish. I can't speak a word of it. And, um, but when I'm in the zone, I can, there's enough words to kind of click. And so another guy and I are sitting there, and with our two very labored Texas Spanish things, this guy, this guy, there was a transformation in front of us. He comes to Christ. He's hugging me. His wife's hugging me. We're having a party. It was the easiest thing in the world to stand behind a Bible map booth and watch people walk by. One late night, these two guys came by, and they were, they were standing there. And let's just say that there was something wrong. And this guy was, I, don't, you know, I wouldn't say incarnate evil, but he didn't look real friendly. And he started saying some pretty unkind things. And I'm looking at the guy who kind of runs the thing, and I'm going, now this one's interesting. And uh, you know, we're not there hawking literature. We can't by the regulations of our vendor display. And uh, he, he, we were just chatting away, and uh, there was an oppression there. Now, I just tell you those two examples to say, sometimes when things happen, just be smart. One of the things, if you've been around any of the security training that is so prominent in our area today is if you go somewhere, if you walk into Walmart and you feel weird, get out of there. Get out of there. Just leave. You pull up in the parking lot and something's a little... Just go somewhere else. Go to Amazon.prime and order it from the convenience of your home. Don't need to go to Walmart and Target and risk your life and limb and children. Goodness gracious. I mean, if you pull up somewhere and it's weird, follow your gut. Now, I'm not trying to overstate this. The reason I belabor this is Moose says participating in the divine nature is a great and precious privilege that we're in a corrupt world. How much more spiritually than physical safety? If something doesn't sit well with you, ask questions. You hear somebody on a podcast, if you still watch TV evangelist on television, and something doesn't sit well, ask some questions. You read something in a Christian journal or a Christian blog, it doesn't sit well with you, ask some questions. Because according to Peter, you have been granted God's divine power and you are a partaker of the divine nature and you might have that discernment sometimes. And don't be weird or wonky about it or go around telling God said, but maybe you ought to take a second. Maybe something is bad, rotten in Bangor. Maybe there's something in the fridge that needs to be tossed out because you have this relationship with the Father. Everything pertaining to life and godliness Verse 4, his precious and magnificent promises. Do you grow numb to the, this kind of theology? His precious and magnificent promises. Oh, he's made some promises for me. I think we can. So that, verse 4, by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. The word partaker is the root koinonios, Another Christian ease word, koinonia groups. Any of you grew up around koinonia groups? A few of us, not so many. Used to be popular in the 70s. But koinonia groups, it's a Greek word. We don't have a translation for it, so we transliterate it. Koinonia it means fellowship. But fellowship is a, is a half-baked word for koinonia. Koinonia is a sharing and an alliance. You know how to understand koinonia? Quilters. Bikers. Hobbyists, 
craftspeople, people that like flea markets, people that jump out of planes, perfectly good planes, people that are tech geeks and go to a conference where they learn about a software or some coding. That's fellowship. Um, a friend of mine's wife is one of the probably top 100 quilters in the United States. And uh, he's been drugged to every quilt show and quilt shop around the country. And he is hysterical about it. Because he'll go in and give it about 30 minutes and he goes out and sits with a cigar and a book. That's the way he does it. And I said, why don't you go smoke a cigar in the quilt show? He goes, that wouldn't work. Um, <laughs> but that's what he does. And he goes, I love my wife and I love that she loves quilts, but it's a cult. Why does it work? Because these are, and she's one of these people that can look at a quilt, tell you the period, the design, or if it was just some makeshift thing that some people did. I mean, she knows all this stuff. There's a guy in this room that knows rugs that way. He can look at a rug and tell you what country it came from. I look at a rug, it's a rug. So what happens in these groups? Koinonia. There's a sharing and an alliance with quilting, a sharing and alliance with Harley-Davidson, a sharing and an alliance with fill-in-the-blank. Now, I've never seen a Harley-Davidson quilting club. Maybe you could start a new one. The idea is you are a partaker. Look what Peter is saying. You're a partaker of the divine nature. Think about this like a quilting club or a biker club or a crafting club. You're, you have an alliance with God. That's a far cry from a coffee and a donut. That's a far cry from a fellowship that we use so freely. And that's not a bad word, but we want to be careful when we take these Bible words and they become commonplace. Listen to, again, what Douglas Moo and others write. A little bit hard, listen carefully. Through the impartation of a new nature and the indwelling of the Spirit, believers are now partakers or sharers in the moral nature of God. This new life and its new attitudes and dispositions is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Listen to that last sentence again. This new life with its new attitudes and new dispositions is the new life of the believer in Christ. New attitude and new dispositions. When you come to Christ, you should have a new attitude and a new disposition. Do you remember when you came to Christ, what changed, what the first thing that changed? Many of you have heard my story. I was a, a, a drug and alcohol crazy teenager, and after I came to Christ, I was stoned or drunk three subsequent times, and each time it was worse than the last. And the last time I had abused substances, I, I woke up and went, why am I doing this? This is no longer fun. I have no human baseline explanation for that. Once I understood and embraced the gospel and Christ's Holy Spirit and dwelt me, the thing he went to work on, I like to say in my life, was easily you're done with abusing drugs and substances because it's going to be a, a literal dead end for you. And I never had any inclination to that. Even in the years when I was in pain management, for so many years on pain management, I never abused those medications. My doctors were marveling because I was always transparent. I was a drug user when I was a teenager. I never hid anything. I, I smoked, I inhaled, and I liked it. Some of you are too young to know what that means. <laughs> and I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my drug abuse years until I came to Christ. And then God said, you're easily, you're, doesn't happen to everybody. I understand that. But that, in God's great kindness, I like to think he knew I needed out of that. It, it was going to be a big problem for me. And I've seen it be a problem for many, many people. This dwelling changes. When you came to Christ, maybe you were proud and 
you were humble. Maybe you were a bitter person and all of a sudden you got softer. Maybe you were angry and, and livid and had a horrible marriage and all of a sudden you mellowed. Cindy and I have missionary friends that have spent almost 30 years in Jakarta and Papua New Guinea working with a translation group called the Yawa, Y-A-W-A. They translate the New Testament and they continue to work. They're both PhDs. If they walked in here, they're two of the most, the humblest people Cindy and I have ever met. And they're both brainiacs beyond definition. And they, uh, Wycliffe and SIL ship them to other language groups when they're having trouble with translations to help them. So, I mean, they live, their brain is wired linguistically and language and culturally. It's, they're just, they're really interesting people. They send out a letter. Some of you are old enough to remember missionaries sent out real letters that came in an envelope. And Cindy and I physically would fight over who got to read their letter out loud. My older two kids couldn't wait to read Dr. and Dr. Jones's, and that great Jones's letter when it came uh, to our house. And now, of course, it's email. He emailed me yesterday. I can't publish it, but I can tell the story a little bit. They're working with a people group. Uh, a woman uh, is helping, they're doing the, the translation. And the Jesus Film Project is in this area, and they come to the Jesus Project, and they go, hey, we need some people of the language to overdub and read it so it's in their mother tongue, as how this works. And so this woman volunteers. Well, she comes to Christ in the process, just reading a script. She goes home, and she's working on the translation, working on the Jesus Film. Her husband is angry. He's mad. He's violent. He's abusive. And this team is praying for her and her husband in an impoverished culture. And fast forward, um, this abuse continues, and, and she's praying with her. Dr. Linda Jones is praying with her and has to be able to pray with her. Long story short, uh, the guy's out of work. He's angry that the wife's gone. They say, well, come and read for this movie thing we're doing. He doesn't show. Two or three weeks go by. Come and read for this. They'll pay you if you come and read for this. So he comes re reluctantly and starts reading the Gospel of Matthew. You know what happens after the third time he's reading? It rocks his world and he trusts Christ. He quits beating his wife. He's a nice guy. He's all in. He's up with the translation project. There's no human baseline explanation for this stuff. You can't explain this away by experience. We become a partaker. What happened to you? And you, if you haven't gone back there and thought about it, you ought to. Because it's good to go back to your history and see from what he redeemed you and how you've changed. And it's an encouragement that you and I can still change because why? We have his divine power and we have been partakers of his divine nature. That's what this passage is teaching about. Well, the divine power granted us this divine nature. We're not gods. We're not little gods. Um, R.H. Strachan writes, man becomes neither either regenerate or degenerate. Either his spiritual life and moral powers are subject to slow decay and death and the wages of sin, or he rises up to full participation in the divine. The corruption that consists of worldly lusts is an inordinate affection for earthly things. An inordinate affection for for earthly things. When I read that commentary this week, I asked myself, Michael, what inordinate affection do you have toward worldly things? 
I didn't like reading that. And I have to ask my question, myself the question, the bigger, better, newer, more bear. Bigger, better, newer, more. Bigger, better, newer, more. Bigger, better, newer, more. I've got a truck. I love my truck. You know that two, almost three-year models later now, mine has a six-speed transmission. There's one with a 10-speed transmission. You know what that means? That means about three more miles to the gallon on the highway. Think of the money I could save. And they did some appointments that mine doesn't have because it's bigger, better, newer, more. And I could write a check for it. Cindy, Cindy well, I had to convince her, but she probably let me. I could go buy that new truck. It's bigger, better, and more. But you know what's going to have you a problem? In 2021, they're going to come out with another one. And another one. And another one. Bigger, better, and more. What's your problem? We did, we're done with the house, the one we built. It's the last one. Paid for, we're done. I, I affectionately refer to it as Cindy's house. And, and we love it. And I smile when I say that. <laughs> we love it. And as a realtor, she often reminds me, it's 80-20 or 90-10. If you have a house that you live 90% of, be blessed. If you're 80-20, we'll try to fix 10. You're never going to find a 100% house, Ever. And those of you who built the house know this. And those of you who haven't, take it by faith. She can line up clients all day long to tell you, you're never going to find the perfect house. The perfect house is the one you just sold. Because it looks the best it ever did the day you sell it for somebody else to buy it. And then nostalgia. I wish we lived in our old house back on such and such. Nostalgia is an early symptom of Alzheimer's. <laughs> you forget couple lessons. You and I have been granted the divine provision. The divine provision is Christ's work and the Holy Spirit in us. Seeing that he granted us his divine power, look at it again, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do you understand you got all you need? That's why I wanted to camp on these two verses. I don't think we get this. Because the bigger, better, newer, more, the hole in our heart, the lack therein, it's not my children didn't turn out this, that, and the other, my husband, my wife, my divorce, whatever, fill in the blank, my loss, it's not where did you and I get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? Reel it back. God, not just Peter, is telling you, you got all you need for a life of godliness. Is that more significant than life of material acquisition or however we want life to work? 1 John 3, 3, anyone, everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be the divine power and divine nature. Don't make us, you know, sinless Christians can make the flesh better. Don't believe me? Read Romans chapter 7. I can't understand why this has been such a debate for uh, Bible students for so many years about where Paul was speaking. He's talking about the struggle of doing the right thing and when he's tempted by sin. And he exasperates, who can deliver me from this? Answer, Jesus Christ. You're going to struggle till you're dead. Get over it. Doesn't mean we capitulate to sin. It means we acknowledge this is going to be tough. It's going to be frustrating. But you got all you need. You got all you need. Louis Barbieri writes, each man must make a choice. 
Either he becomes free from sin or further enslaved. I like that. You can become free from sin or enslaved to sin. That's the dividing line. The person who's free from sin is the one who acknowledges, I sin all the time. I fail. I got mad. I got angry. I lied. I said too much. Oh, if I could have. Just this week, I said some words among friends. And it, it, I got home, and it bugged me that night. I woke up the next morning, and the first thing I had, why easily were you so stupid to say that to your friend? It was so unkind, uncharitable for you to say that. You need to apologize and repent. It bugged me. You got stuff like that? That's a good thing. That's, because what's happening is this nose is working. God's Spirit's not going to let you and me get away with stuff. No secrets from him. I'm here to inform you. Lastly, both believers have both the knowledge and the promise of God, and it's underlined on the screen. You can see the highlighted words. Through the true knowledge of him and the magnificent promises. And we talked about this last week. You have to know the right information to be able to practice it. And here Peter's explaining that. You've got the right knowledge. Here's your baseline. And then you have to trust him at his word. We have four children, three of whom are adopted. Our two oldest daughters are married. We have uh, a couple of grandchildren, and our two younger our children are still on their way spiritually. And in more than one discussion with teenage children, uh, adoption adds a whole uh, new dimension to a family. Some of you have adopted children, and you know this. Um, but adoption is uh, it's a wonderful thing, but it's not without its own unique challenges, and each child is unique. Doesn't matter if you have four bio kids, they're all different, right? Parenting book with child one compliant, throw it out with child two. <laughs> throw it out with child three. Throw it out with child four. Everyone's a new one, right? When we had these discussions with our teenagers, um, I remember on more than one occasion when they're unleashing it, their mom or me, I would say, your mom and I have everything you need for you to be a success in life. What I meant by that was we have set aside money for your school. We know what work is. We will help you get a car. We'll help you with insurance. We'll help you get on your way. We're here. You can always come home and sleep here. There's a home for you here. We have all you need. But you know, they're free agents. They've got to make a choice. And there are some rules and regulations. It's called obedience. I've got to obey him. You've got to obey me as a mom and a dad. You can't live that way and expect me to pay for your college. You can't make all D's and F's and expect me to write another tuition check. That was part of the deal. C's are better. No tickets. On and on and on. I got all you need. I'm not saying I'm the perfect mom and dad. Don't hear that. I am saying we got all they need for them to succeed in life. And most parents in this room go, yeah, exactly. We don't have, we're not rich, but we got all they need to make it in life. But you know what? They got to make a choice. He has all you need for you to make it in the spiritual life. The question is, will you obey him as your father and be a partaker of this divine nature and this divine power? In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Thank you.